Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. And we are live with another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. I'm Michael. I'm your host. And today I am here with my friend, Alex Manos. Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Yeah, this is take two. We tried to do it about a week ago and had some tech issues. So we're back again, going to give it another whirl. Alex is someone who I've followed on social media for quite some time, especially on Instagram. I really enjoy your content and find a lot of alignment and synergy. I told you when we spoke earlier that like you always seem to post something at pretty much the same time that I'm getting interested in it, whether it's breathwork or psychedelics or trauma and emotional things, or lately you've been posting or I've seen things on like functional dentistry and oral health and how it relates to overall health and I was dealing with some dental things and was in that rabbit hole and was like, oh, this is really helpful. So right. I feel like I've been kind of along the same progression and journey at the same time that you've been going through those explorations. And so I think this will be a fun conversation that I've, I've looked forward to for a while. And for those who are not familiar with Alex's Instagram and his work, he is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner with a background in nutritional therapy, life coaching, personal training, and massage therapy, and is now training to be transformational breath facilitator and psychedelic practitioner. That is a pretty wide range of things. And I have experience with all of them except the massage therapy. So we have a pretty similar background. And Alex is also a co-founder of HealthPath, a company which offers functional testing, direct to the consumer with the aim of making health change easier. And finally, is also the co-founder of the Applied Functional Medicine Mentoring Program, a mentoring program for nutritionists and doctors who are entering the functional medicine space. So you're into a lot of things. You're doing a lot of things, uh, working with both sides of the equation when it comes to the functional medicine world providing services for individuals looking to gain access to functional lab testing and services and mentoring for professionals. So I believe that probably gives you a, a pretty broad perspective on a lot of issues. And we're going to talk about some of that now. So I'm curious, before we get into any of the functional medicine-y type conversation, what was your progression there? So out of all those things, you didn't start doing them all at once. So I'm curious, what was your progression and, and what order did those certifications and practices and skills come? Sure. So I was actually quite lucky in many ways. I, from 14, 15 years old, I knew I wanted to be a personal trainer. Um, I loved exercise. I was kind of an athlete in school. Um, from 15, started to get just injury after injury. So I started seeing a whole bunch of physios, osteos, massage therapists. And I think seeing them really kind of sparked my interest just in biomechanics and the human body. So it kind of incentivized me to really go down the sort of personal training and massage routes. Um, and when I was 18, I was diagnosed with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I read a book 
um, by Patrick Holford's all around nutritional therapy for gut health. And it just, it changed my life ultimately. So Patrick Holford was the founder of the Institutes of Optimum Nutrition, which is a college in London that trains nutritional therapists. So that's what then got me into nutritional therapy. Um, I went through that three-year diploma and just felt like for kind of security, I wanted to go and get a degree in nutritional therapy. So then went and did a kind of a, a year add-on, um, decided I wanted to get my master's. So I did my master's alongside my functional medicine training. So during my degree, that introduced me to the functional medicine model, which was just such, I think, a both simple but sophisticated way of thinking about health and how we can support an individual on their health journey. So that really sort of incentivized me then to, to travel to the States and to complete their sort of certification process. And then it was only, where are we? It was three years ago that I had my first psychedelic experience in the Netherlands. And I think this all came out of just feeling like there was something missing kind of in my life. There was this, I, could, I can't fully describe it still, but I remember listening to an Aubrey Marcus podcast and he had a guest on who had just come back from an ayahuasca ceremony and I knew nothing about psychedelics. So I was listening to this guy talking about how they're all vomiting and I was like, what the hell has this guy just gone and done? And the very common story of I then read Michael Pollan's book, uh, which obviously kind of exploded on the scene and did really well. And um, I was just called. I was absolutely obsessed and so curious about psychedelics from those two experiences that um, I found the Synthesis Institute online, which are kind of a legal um, psilocybin company in the Netherlands. Um, I went towards the end of 2019 and it was there, I'm nearly there, Michael. <laughs> uh, it was there that I had my first breathwork experience, which was actually almost more surprising than the psychedelic ceremony out there. Um, I had this huge emotional release, um, loads of laughter, you know, that real kind of like child laughter of just full body getting involved. And that was followed by just crying with like this sadness that this is all within me just by the breath. Like, how have I not known this um, or, or forgotten, I would say. And that's what then led me into kind of training in transformational breath work and psychedelic therapy. That's interesting. I have a few questions. Thank you for sharing all of that. What was the name of the book? that you referenced at the beginning? Do you remember? Oh, do I remember? I don't. It's a green book. <laughs> the author is Patrick Holfords. His most well-known one is the Optimum Nutrition Bible, which is a brilliant book. It's like a thousand pages long. It's the thickest book I've ever owned. Um, but if you search oh. Patrick Holfords, um, he has a, a very specific book around um, improving gut health. So it'll be easy to find for people. Okay. How much did you have to travel for IFM? Do they have any trainings in the UK or did you have to go to the States a whole bunch? Yeah, at that point in time, I had to go to the States a whole bunch. And to be honest, that for me was like the, the best experience. Like, because, you know, traveling there, feeling like really immersed in the experience for like a long weekend, visiting cities that I might not have visited otherwise. So it was, a uh, yeah, I absolutely Where did loved. you get to go? Uh, I went to San Diego, I went to Boston, I went to Phoenix, I went to Dallas, and I went to, where did I go? I think Miami as well. Wow. I didn't know they had training. So I've been to one in, in San Diego. I lived in San Diego for five years and they had them pretty frequently there, but okay. um, you got quite the, quite the US tour. Do they do trainings in Europe now? They do now. And they also do like online 
Um, so you can actually okay. stream in. Netherlands, you mentioned the Synth- Synthesis Institute. That's the name, correct? Yeah. And so they work with psilocybin, incorporate breathwork, probably some other practices, tools. You mentioned there's this uh, legal psilocybin operation in the Netherlands. Yeah. Is, are mushrooms and other psychedelics, because growing up in the States, Holland or the Netherlands, I never know the correct term to use. I don't know if those are interchangeable or not, but that country to those who are interested in cannabis or psychedelics is like this magical wonderland where you walk around and people are just frolicking and people will be tossing weed and mushrooms at you. And it's just just this, of course, that's ridiculous, but that's kind of like the um, imaginary creation of the Netherlands in the head of American teenagers, especially Amsterdam, because somebody knew somebody who went to Amsterdam and you could go into this place and get this thing. And so What's the deal there? Is psilocybin and mushrooms and psychedelics legal or is it like licensed or what's the? So my understanding is that truffles are are legal. So when you go to the Netherlands to like a legal retreat, they're using truffles rather than um, the actual mushroom. So as soon as the mushroom kind of peaks up from the the soil, it becomes illegal, basically. Um, So, yeah, it's a truffle based ceremony that you do. Truffles are mushrooms that haven't come out of the ground. Yeah, it's kind of like I know what they are because in Italy they're food. Like they uh, yeah, grow, yeah, they exactly. they yeah. hunt truffles here, but these truffles are not psychedelic. They're just no, delicious, and the psychedelic ones are not delicious. Just <laughs> if anybody's curious. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like um, I always describe it as they look a little bit quite like walnuts, and okay. there is a, there is a nutty flavor to it. But yeah, it's not like a pleasant thing to to munch on. So you you often have it as a tea. There's like a tea ritual yeah. you do as a group. Okay. And they that's where you found the transformational breath work as well, right? Yeah. So as part of the preparation, you get you get there on the Friday. Um, there are some exercises. There's like a Q&A and a sharing circle just to get to know one another. And then Saturday morning uh, before the ceremony, which for me started at one o'clock, um, there was a breath work session. And it was kind of just all about obviously preparing you for the psychedelic experience and yeah, it was just really profound in the first time I'd ever done anything like it. it his work is wild stuff. And I remember the first holotropic breath class I went to and I was ill-prepared. Like I had no idea what was about to happen. Now, I had a lot of psychedelic experience before I ever experienced breath work. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that the state that I found myself in was scary or anything. It was just completely unexpected. It was as if I'm sitting in this room and then all of a sudden somebody had slipped me three grams of mushrooms or like, you know, it it was like all of a sudden like, whoa, hey, okay. And then keep breathing, just keep breathing. And then trying to figure out what's going on. My mind is trying to figure out like, how is this happening? What's going on at the same time? I'm like, no, don't do that. Just (laughs) be in it. But then why is this? How does this wonder what's happening? And then by then I knew some physiological things Cause I'd already been through my master's program and stuff. So like my mind's trying to figure out what's causing me to feel like this while I'm feeling like this, instead of just feeling like this. And it took me a couple breath sessions before I could not do that and, yeah. and shut off the figure outer and just have the experience. Mm-hmm. But I could see how for someone with no psychedelic experience that doing breath session beforehand to orient oneself to a slightly altered state of consciousness would definitely have been helpful for younger me who did not have that. Right. Yeah. Did not, it's almost like a safe on-ramp 
Yeah, exactly. It, it, for me, it was really helpful because it did absolutely give me a, a kind of sense of what might be to come. And it really was like that. Um, you know, the psychedelic experience was just a, a more profound breathwork experience in that unique experience. So, yeah, it was really helpful and it made me feel safer, I think, going into it because there obviously there are a few nerves that first very first time. Yeah, it's a big it opens things up, too. So like I've never I've never paired them that close together, but I would guess that the breathwork can create a more open experience with psychedelics. So that's, it's on my to-do list. So I'll let you, I'll let you know. Are you studying and, and learning to become a breath facilitator in order to just learn it more yourself and have that skill? Or are you looking to teach or what's your goal with that? Yeah, so my, my aim is to use that in a one-to-one setting. So to offer transformational breath um, to clients one-to-one, but also to offer it within retreat settings. So I think my... Mm-hmm. My midterm vision is to be involved on a psychedelic retreat as the breathwork facilitator kind of thing, and then get start to build up a little bit of experience being within a retreat setting. And then the long, long-term vision is to, to sort of facilitate and guide some of those ceremonies as well. Yeah, that's honestly, that's something I would love to do as well. And I've been, I've been involved in as like aid, like as a helper situation and, and support, but it's something long-term wise I also would be very interested in both. I'm, I've currently got a ban on training programs because I was in a two-year training and a one-year training that were both very intense that overlapped in 20, 2020, 2021, while building a new platform, while running Rebel Health Tribe, while planning a move to Italy. And I got I mean, it was very, very, very challenging. So as soon as those two trainings got off my plate, I was like, okay, you're not allowed because I'm a perpetual like, oh, that looks fun. I'll take that thing. That's interesting. I got a ban. But when my ban is lifted, breath work is the next thing. And I'm kind of just figuring out where I'm going to go and which because there's a lot of options. Yeah. But that's my next uh, that's my next foray into training as well. So um, and we spoke before we were on air. I have a friend who's been through the program at transformational breath and i've experienced those sessions and it's a it's an interesting one there's i've had some pretty transformative experiences with it so if anybody out there is listening and you're in the uk definitely follow up with alex about that so we have a million topics we could talk about here i'm curious we had kind of planned on gut health and talking about terrain versus germs and some non-dietary strategies to improve gut health. I'd like to stick to that, but maybe on the fringes of it a little bit. So terrain theory and what was that? Ask whatever you want. I'm an open book. (laughs) Cool. Terrain theory and germ theory, honestly, because of COVID, I think that a lot more people are familiar with these terms now than they probably were two years ago and a whole bunch of other terms around infectious disease and virology and all of that. But how would you summarize germ theory versus terrain theory? And how do you see that playing into, you know, which direction like functional medicine and like more integrative holistic levels of healing are are headed? Mm. So I think, you know, the the general principle is super simple, which is germ theory is, is really the understanding that 
a specific organism causes a specific disease. So an example of that would be there's research talking about how Klebsiella pneumoniae, a specific sort of uh, bacteria or bacterial strain of Klebsiella, has been strongly associated with ankylosing spondylitis in the research. And they talk about it as this kind of trigger of a specific autoimmune disease. And as a result of you know, other examples here as well, there is this belief that, oh, if you have this, this one organism in the gut and you have the genetic predisposition, then maybe you'll go on to develop this disease. Whereas the terrain theory really proposes that it's all about the relationship that we have with these organisms rather than you having or not having the organism. And I've seen this in clinical practice a lot, whereby people have come to me with ankylosing spondylitis. We've done some GI microbiome testing. And interestingly, you know, I can think of three clients I've worked with with the condition, and they all did have elevated levels of Klebsiella pneumoniae in their stool test. So it kind of, you go, oh, wow, okay, this aligns with what the research discusses. But in all three situations, um, working with them, supporting with them in one situation, um, getting them off medication, on retesting, their Klebsiella pneumoniae was still there at the same amount. So we had, it's not like we reduced the amount of the organism that was in the large intestine, and that's why this individual got better. We improved the relationship between them and this organism. And I think that's you know, a lovely way of thinking about the terrain theory. And we see in the research numerous examples of this kind of situation whereby even what we think is let's I'll call it like a pathogenic overgrowth um, sometimes it's an adaptive response the body's deliberately done it for a reason um, so we see in sort of indigenous tribes for example that you sometimes get an overgrowth of a specific organism um, that organism is known to produce let's say vitamin b5 oh and funnily enough that host is deficient in vitamin b5 um, so again, it's this adaptive response. We're in a relationship with our ecosystem, both internally and externally. And I think that sort of broader, more holistic approach is obviously what functional medicine, systems biology, P4 medicine, and all these things are trying to achieve ultimately. That's really interesting. I've We've done a lot of webinars and interviews with Kiran Krishnan, who's the chief science officer at Microbiome Labs. And yeah. he he's like a wealth of like, you just drop that example of like in an indigenous population, there was an organism that produces B5 and the host is deficient in B5. So they will be overgrown in B5. He drops little anecdotes like that, like multiple times per interview of little stories about how I just immediately interpret that as to, we don't actually understand anything because, <laughs> because if you put the lab test from that indigenous person and had most even functional practitioners look at it and said, what's this situation? They would say, we need to kill that organism because it's overgrown. So let's take whatever thing kills that and not look at the, the larger picture of it. I've even have practitioner and researcher friends who are brilliant, 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 who are now researching like helminthic therapy and, and things around parasites and organisms that balance our immune system. And when we're absent of them, we get more sick. And yet now still, if you see any sort of parasitic organism on a stool test, the even the functional approach is carpet bomb, everything, kill that, because yeah. that's definitely causing the problem. I find it fascinating that you said you, you find the Klebsiella with the ankylosing spondylosis, but they, they get better, but the organism's still there. It means that 
either the metabolite produced by that bug that tends to contribute to the situation is now being cleaned up appropriately, or there's some other, like the immune system has stopped freaking out about the bug, or like it's completely about the relationship between the organism, you, and the bug, the other organism. It's not about the organism being present. So Kiran was talking, I mean, six, seven years ago in webinars we were doing about how he wasn't a big fan of this like hostile carpet bombing approach to fixing GI conditions by taking, you know, like 12 antimicrobials at once and all this stuff. And he was kind of an outlier then. And when we were talking about that, we get people messaging us, but my practitioner has me doing this and everybody doing this. And now I'm seeing it shift. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this makes things a lot more complicated yes. than there's that bug for that bug. You take this thing, but um, I think we could tie in, you know, like, okay, cool, great way to confuse us. What do we do with this information to, you know, non-dietary strategies to improving gut health. So like, what do you think it was with those, those people that you were working with that, that caused a shift in their symptoms and the severity of their autoimmune condition, but you didn't get rid of the, the bug that's linked to that condition what factors do you think are at play there and and what variables or actions or steps have have you seen people take that has a positive impact on the way that their own biology interacts with the organisms that are there i don't know if that makes sense or if i just i think so too long with that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think i i mean there are different ways to probably think about this but from a a broad perspective, it's it's the environment. So change your environment, whether that's from a nutritional perspective, a light perspective, a movement perspective, a breathing perspective, and you're influencing these relationships. And I mean, you just can't underestimate the role that stress plays within all of this. We've, we've got sort of experimental studies showing us that uh, if the host is in a state of stress, then some of these organisms are producing their own stress hormones in the guts. And those stress hormones increase the capacity for certain pathogenic organisms to, to colonize and take hold on the mucosal lining. So again, you know, I like to think about it that the state of the host, you or I, kind of has a ripple down effect into the state of the organisms in the GI tract as well. So a fitter host, a fitter bacteria. So we know that athletes produce more metabolites like butyrate compared to sedentary individuals. So if you're, if you're tweaking just by 1%, lots of different inputs, you are creating a much more harmonious, free-flowing, energetic being. So another example would be if you support someone's microbiome diversity through um, dietary interventions, potentially supplement interventions, getting them moving more if they are a bit sedentary and things like this, that's going to have a knock-on effect in regards to the relationship to certain organisms. And that might influence the amount of the organism. So something like Klebsiella pneumoniae may go down through that kind of crowding out type concept. Um, but as you say, the, the way the research is moving, I think, is really exciting. We're moving away from just being able to say, you've got this amount of this organism in the gut to you've got this amount of this organism and this, what's, this is what it's doing. And as you mentioned, it's those metabolites that really not, well, partly dictate um, how we would ideally interpret the results and data we're getting from stool testing. 
So I think it's a really exciting kind of next decade in regards to research and clinical practice there. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that athletes produce more butyrate, but there's so many different metabolic, because people think, you know, I'm not going to go totally on a rant with this, but people think that movement, exercise, strength training, or anything like that, you know, well, it just makes you have bigger muscles or it gives you more of a athletic capability or it makes it so I don't get winded when I walk up the big hills that are in this town that I live in, like I did when I first got here. And that's all true. And when I talked to Dr. Jared Sigler, who does, he's a functional neurology expert. He talked about movement and exercise being one of the most important things for preventing neurodegenerative diseases. Then when I talk to microbiome experts, they talk about how movement and exercise influences microbiome diversity and inflammation levels in the gut and different metabolites in the gut. So it doesn't surprise me that butyrate is, is there, but right. it's, again, the more we learn, the more we realize there aren't separations between practices like, oh, getting your circadian rhythm imbalance is good for this thing or oh exercise is good for this thing it's almost like we are organisms that are designed to move and when we move our body likes it and the things that live in our body like it and when we don't our body gets sad and the things inside our body get sad or dysfunctional and that goes for all the other all the other practices as well and it's ultra complex like you could, we could get into the mechanisms of how some of that works. Like why does exercise make you make more butyrate in your gut? That would be a really long conversation with some intense biochemistry that I don't know if either of us can actually go into, but this stuff can all be really simple too. Yeah. Like I've kind of come full circle with my own. I started out teaching foundational stuff because I only knew what a personal trainer knows who knows a little bit of nutrition and a little bit of health coaching. So like go to bed on time, try to manage your stress, drink water move your body. Then I went down the rabbit hole of lab testing and functional things and integrative health and protocols and all this stuff. And now I'm kind of back to being like, okay, go to bed on time, reduce <laughs> your stress, move your body. And it's, I don't know. And I, I feel like, are you, are you kind of in the same? Absolutely. And I think it's the thing to appreciate is that at the end of the day, most people aren't doing those things. Um, I always have a, a bit of a joke with some of my clients when they email me. I look at the time they've emailed me. It's like half 11 at night. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I've got you. Um, and we have to have a conversation around it because a lot of people just aren't doing the foundations. And they're so easy. I think people don't. It's sometimes hard to appreciate how significant something can influence your health when it seems such a basic thing, like get outside and have some sunshine in your day. Um, it seems that in the modern world, we need to kind of have a deep understanding of, well, tell me why, otherwise I'm not going to do it. Um, while at the same time, we all know how much better we feel when we're outside. <laughs> so again, I do think it's those foundations that done consistently make a real difference. And obviously there are exceptions to the rule, um, but we've got to start with the foundations. And I think a lot of us are trying to shortcut it with things like lab testing and supplements as a way to bypass the fact that our lifestyles aren't conducive to kind of vibrant health. I love that about the emails. Uh, moving to Europe has allowed me to out many people in the <laughs> US because I see when people, I get notifications on social media posts that I make and I'll see people like commenting or liking one of my posts 
And I'm like, dude, I know what time it is there. <laughs> Don't email me and tell me that, you know, you're having this issue when you're reading my Facebook at two in the morning. Like yeah. it's, I, and it's, I've seen it a lot. And now it's like, okay, now I know the people who are awake at 3 a.m. on social media. And so it's kind of funny because I never, never paid attention to that before. But now I get the notifications real time, just like you get an email and then you'll, you'd see the email with a timestamp, but the timestamps I don't pay attention to on social media, but I see the, the ding. Yeah. I'm like, huh, do a little math. Okay. But yeah, I, I used to, I haven't worked with one-on-one clients in a while, but when I, when I did last, I would get people come to me and they wanted to often do, you know, they, they listen to some podcasts and they want to run these like four lab tests and they want to be on this protocol and they want a protocol for this thing. And they want this supplement and they want, because chronic disease is complex how you get it is complex, how it functions is complex. And what a lot of functional medicine had put forward, especially like five years ago, was complex protocols and lab testing and match the protocols with the labs. And I would, I realized, like you said, after a while, I started to regress and ask questions like very basic questions of here's 10 foundational things. Where do you stand on these things? And most of them weren't doing them. And it's an interesting point you bring up that maybe because they're easy, some of them, that we perceive like it can't really be that effective or powerful or have that much of an influence. But as someone who has suffered with lifelong anxiety and depression and and mental health challenges, I can promise anyone out there that if I stay up really late at night and get a really night short, short night of sleep, and if I, especially if it's for an extended period of time, if I get like sleep deprivation for any period of time, it doesn't matter what else I'm doing. I will revert to anxiety and depression and brain fog like within a couple of days, usually within one night. I can notice within one night now. And so the simple things, the foundational stuff, now if I opened a, a client practice back up, it would probably be like, okay, don't apply to work with me unless you're already doing these things because I don't want to take your money. And I don't want you to spend thousands of dollars on lab tests and on me. Do those things. If people are doing all those things and then still having a lot of issues, sure, people like you and the the practitioners you train and work with can help. But it's a little rant. I like to go on as often as possible now. Yeah, it's important. Have you noticed that as well? Definitely. I think, you know, one of the most fundamental human needs is to kind of feel safe. And I think sometimes we therefore attach to protocols to simplicity of this bug's causing my issue because it gives us peace of mind that, you know, we're doing what we need to be doing. Um, I just had a consult this morning with someone who fundamentally underneath it all, admittedly, is a perfectionist, which comes from her upbringing with her parents but that plays out in the fact that she's highly stressed and anxious and works too much. Um, She tried intermittent fasting while on, while exercising first thing in the morning, she wouldn't eat till 2 PM in a stressful job. And health is so complex and deep. And I think it can become overwhelming and scary, especially when there's things from a psycho-emotional perspective that we don't necessarily really want to go and rehash So we look for answers outside of ourselves. We look to control the diet because it's easy to do for a lot of people, or we want the supplements or we want to move our bodies as a stress buster. But fundamentally, we have to think about health is a a consequence of our behaviors. And a lot of behaviors and habits we have are a way to manage our inner world. And therefore, we all really just need to look 
inwards for answers to how we can get better rather than looking outwards to a, a protocol or even a, a personalized protocol from a practitioner who knows kind of what they're doing. So I think one of the most biggest recommendations I have these days is, you know, don't look and don't expect me to give you some protocol. We need to ask the right questions because you have the answer within yourself, but we just need to create a safe container for you to be able to go there. So, you know, how do we help you overcome this kind of perfectionistic tendency, which is creating so much stress, which means you're never going to improve your gut health until we deal with day-to-day stresses that you're under. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, that's how kind of deep I think it goes often with the types of clients I work with. You know, you've got to understand someone's childhood whenever you're dealing with someone with chronic complex health issues, because it often, to some degree, will come back to the fact that their nervous system developed in a world which was stressful and scary, and therefore their allostatic load is much higher than someone who lived in a really safe, loving environment. And at the end of the day, that's one of the most common themes that I see with my clients, ultimately. There is some degree of stress and trauma early on in their lives, sometimes in their adolescence or adulthood as well, obviously. But this concept of resiliency, allostasis, allostatic load, for me, such a powerful paradigm and way of thinking about all of this stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And allostatic load, I just want to define really quick. So you, that's kind of like the, the analogy of the bucket, right? Like you have the bucket and your bucket can hold this much crap. And that can be stress. It can be chemicals. It can be disrupted sleep. It can be all these things. And people you're saying that have that kind of background their bucket starts at a higher level being full kind of, or it's a smaller bucket or both or allostatic um, load is like the combination of the things that disrupt the physiology. Allostatic load is often defined as like the accumulative wear and tear of the allostatic mechanism. So we have homeostasis. We've got a set point, super basic example, 120 over 80 for like blood pressure in the, in the doctor's yeah. office. Allostasis is kind of, the partner of homeostasis. So allostasis is the fact that you go into a stressful experience and your physiology, it becomes more flexible. It adapts to the environment and then will return to that homeostatic set point after the stressful experience. So cortisol goes up and then comes back down to normal. Every time you initiate that allostatic mechanism, there's a bit of wear and tear in your physiology. So if you've got a really sensitive stress system because you had to develop hypervigilance because you were in a you're in a, let's just call it a troublesome home environment, you're experiencing more allostatic mechanisms, your stress response is kicking in more frequently throughout your life. As a result, there's more wear and tear in your physiology. And some researchers use the term allostatic overload, which is at the point where there's so much wear and tear, you now have symptoms or a diagnosis or a dis-ease. And there's a really interesting paper that talks about your resiliency zone, you know, which is literally think of like two lines Mm -hmm. parallel to one another. And we want to just consciously kind of cultivate the widest resiliency zone possible and that's where learning all sorts of different tools helps you know that's where your physical resilience comes into it but your emotional intelligence comes into it your spirituality comes into it and everything down to things like microbiome diversity comes into it because we talk about a resilient microbiome being one that is diverse you know a diverse microbiome is able to withstand perturbations better than one that is less diverse so it's a, every kind of from subcellular mechanisms through to the whole organism we're talking about the same sort of principles 
I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit. It's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast. A gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now, back to your episode. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The two trainings that I've been through most recently are entirely focused in that area of mental, emotional, trauma, energetic, spiritual, nervous system, child development, neuroscience, all that kind of stuff. I'd be curious. I didn't have that knowledge and background when I was working with people with complex chronic illness. So I don't know that it was 100% true, but I'm guessing like what you mentioned, if you chase things back, most people with chronic conditions and chronic health issues, you could trace it not necessarily back to starting at a certain point, but that that kind of set the tone for where they're at. And I and I love the line that you used that the, they have the answers. It's just asking the right questions. And one of the trainings I completed is Dr. Gabor Mate's Compassionate Inquiry Training. Oh, and the whole program is, it's mostly for therapists. I was like one of three non-therapists in my cohort, but that's all it is, is learning to ask the right questions. Like you learn to ask the right questions intuitively. It's like a, in a session with a person to help them find the answers that they need. And you don't give them answers at any point. Like it's not about giving advice. It's not about telling them what to do. It's not about any of that. It's literally just asking questions. Inquiry is in the name of the, of the modality. And I think that it will benefit doctors and health practitioners and nutritionists and coaches as well to learn some of those skills. And then the lines, now that I've been trained on both sides of healing, and I, I hesitate to use that term sides, but that's how people kind of look at it is there's the, the nutrition, health, fitness, wellness, functional medicine side, physical health. And then on the other side is the mental, emotional, spiritual, energetic trauma. The more I've learned on both sides, there are, I've learned there's not sides <laughs> that we've kind of created sides. That's just not, that's not a real thing. Yeah. And that the one thing you do over here impacts everything over here, just as much as one thing that happened over here impacts everything over here. And there's literally no separation. Mm. I think that the breath work, you know, that you're learning to do, and I see your posts about this and how, I mean, we could talk, you said non-dietary interventions for micro or for gut health, Anyone out there listening that has IBS or Crohn's or chronic GI symptoms, I would challenge any one of them to honestly be able to say that they haven't noticed a worsening of their symptoms during periods of stress or emotional disruption or grief or loss or feeling unsupported or any of those things. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot of correlations? Would that fall under the non-dietary yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've got really good research backing this up. So we know that yoga therapy is just as effective as the low FODMAP diet for people with IBS. Um, we know that cold therapy activates the vagus nerve and, and provides this anti-inflammatory benefit. I was speaking to a colleague two days ago who was speaking to someone over the weekend. They went and did like a, an ice bath kind of event. And a client of his who has inflammatory bowel disease went and did kind of an ice bath. Um, within 24 hours, completely came out a flare he was in and has had like his best gut health for an extended period of time since. 
So that we've got so many tools, breathwork, we have published research showing us in case studies published that breathwork can help with significant IBS, IBD. It's not even like people with basic low level symptoms who have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. We're talking about people who have been hospitalized sometimes and have lost 20 kilograms in weight because they can't eat, who are getting better through breathwork interventions. And we understand some of the mechanisms. You know, there's some really interesting research around the diaphragm and essentially the muscular coordination involved in having a bowel movement and how if we had sort of issues in potty training, for example, we can actually develop kind of a, an uncoordinated firing sequence, which means that we're just not very good at having an easy to pass bowel movement. And that will obviously manifest as being constipated, which is actually my background. So when I was five, I had a terrible, embarrassing accident at school. Um, basically, to cut a long story short, from that event, my mum said to me that you never went for a poo at school since that day. And I was five. So we're talking about a long period of time of not going to have a bowel movement during a working day. And that obviously led to constipation. We know chronic constipation is going to lead to dysbiosis and a slow buildup of environmental toxins in the body. And that's going to compound dysbiosis, impact the biliary system, and the kind of just you have this cascade of things that can happen. Um, so again, it's just an example of sometimes if a client says to me something like, Alex, I can have a glass of water, or my client this morning, I eat lettuce and I bloat. It's like, okay, this is not a dietary thing. There's nothing particularly fibrous in water that's going to explain why you're bloating. You know, there is potentially a diaphragmatic or a gut brain axis thing going on here that needs to address. And that's where suddenly those non-dietary interventions for gut health really kind of come into their own. Thank you for sharing all of that. And the people don't realize often too, that, you know, how we breathe has an Im immediate and direct impact on the nervous system. And that actually they go both ways. So the nervous system gets heightened, the breath gets shorter, gets more shallow, gets faster. The nervous system relaxes, the breath tends to naturally become deeper, slower, and more diaphragmatic. And you can do that. Like it can, it happens automatically going that way and you can influence it going the other way. It's their linked mechanisms. So, and we're using breathwork as a pretty wide term. Like some breathwork is rather stimulating to the nervous system. So that's that's different. There's also ways you can breathe that are calming. And that's what fascinates me most is that I'm starting to understand the breath is like this lever set of levers that we can use to control the physiology in a way that's more effective, more direct, more like fundamental than any diet or supplement or other thing that we can do. And this is not a secret. This is not like a, a new thing that science is figuring out. If you like read the oldest texts that are known to man, this is discussed in like Vedic texts and things like that, that they figured this out like forever ago. And then we ignored it for a really, really long time. But yeah, I just feel like there's a million different things that we could link to a million different things right now. But so it's these non-dietary and diets. I mean, yes, pro processed foods are going to cause problems and seed oils and all processed things and, you know, lots of sugar and all the things that everybody kind of knows now are not good for your gut, no matter how much you're breathing or how much we're doing meditation or going in cold water or saunas, or I think I've seen you post. I, that's the yeah. thing. People are like, do you miss anything from the States? I, I got rid of or sold my infrared sauna that was in my house. 
and I have now not been in a sauna for like three months. And I used to go in it three or four times a week and I can feel the difference significantly in how I feel and in my body. And I'm like scrambling to figure out a solution to that right now. And I know that's first world problem completely, but hot, cold, breath, meditation, yoga, you mentioned, I've never heard that statistic either that yoga and you said a low FODMAP diet had equal outcomes. Yeah, so they've been compared directly in studies. Take a group, take a group, two groups of people with IBS. One does yoga, one does the low FODMAP diet for eight weeks or whatever it was, and the outcomes are pretty much the same. So, and you know, if you think about what that's actually saying, that you cannot do anything with your diet if you have IBS, but you can go and practice yoga three times a week, and that will have the same impact. And you think, wow, think of how much stress some people go through when they restrict their diet like that. And it's not to say that the low format diet doesn't have a role to play still. Um, the way I look at it is the, the restrictiveness of this diet needs to match the severity of the symptoms and how debilitating they are for someone. So, you know, if someone's really struggling and they're, you know, struggling to get to work or be a good parent, then yeah, we're going to throw everything at it to get the biggest improvement in the shortest amount of time. But when you've certainly got those symptoms that you're still able to do what you want to do, do we need to go into a restrictive diet or actually can we incorporate other things that not only are going to improve your gut health, but probably have ripple effects into all er- different areas of life. Um, you know, when I'm consistent with my strength training, I'm a different person. Generally I'm happier. I feel a bit more confident in myself. Um, I sleep better. I just generally, I think in other areas of life, I'm a, I'm a better human. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's finding those things that give you these ripple effects, I think. Yeah. And, um, I think a lot of people out there can resonate with that and it doesn't, it's not going to be the same thing like for each person and, and the yoga, I mean, there's different aspects to that too. There's the stress management aspect. There's the relearning how to breathe aspect. There's the moving and stretching and the fascia and the everything else that's going on and the, and the actual massage of the inner organs, which yoga teachers will talk about all the time when you're in yoga, it's different blood flow. It's all these things. So if you're out there thinking like, how would yoga do that? It, it directly impacts every aspect of the physiology that, you know, would improve one's gut function if you understand the mechanisms behind IBS. So, but it doesn't have to be the one thing. Like somebody out there might be like, I hate yoga. And it's like, okay, cool. Do you like cold? Do you like hot? Do you like breathing? Do you like meditation? Do you like nature like we could i've done entire interviews and episodes on things with people who we just talked the entire time about research behind what happens when you be in nature and that's i mean there's a book now uh, uh, called forest bathing and i was like have we gotten to the point where we need a whole book (laughs) to tell us that we should go in the forest and that it's and that it's nice to be in the forest and so find your jam, like find the thing that makes your physiology feel good. And you know what it is. Yeah. Right. And the caveats that is just, I guess, to think about this from the other perspective is sometimes I think deep down, we know that if we do something, it's going to bring stuff up. So there are people whereby breath work is going to just trigger them and they're going to go into a panic mm-hmm. or something. Yoga could be similar. So again, it comes back to how safe does someone feel And I think Mm. they don't necessarily have to know that consciously, but underneath there's something which is like, no, I can't go and do that because I know that I'm just going to maybe, you know, break down or that something's going to happen and they're going to have to feel that pain that they're just suppressing. 
Um, and that's when you can get to a point where you're ready for something like breath work or a psychedelic ceremony. That's why safety and the, the set and the setting is just so important. So I, I just want to add that because maybe it resonates with someone and it's important for us to appreciate that we have to feel ready. As you say, it's got to be something you enjoy. It's got to be something that you mm-hmm. feel on too. And that's very important from a psychedelic perspective. You know, don't force your first ceremony because it's, you know, trending at the moment. Um, are you feeling called to it? Yeah. Is it a good time in your life for it? Um, there are lots of important questions for all of these sorts of things. And, and who's going to support you? And what's that going to look like? And what's your preparation for this? And what's your goal with it? What's your intention? What are you going to do afterwards? Psychedelics have been a part of my life now for, oh man, a long time, 20, 25 years. Wow. And I've talked more people out of using psychedelics than I have encouraged them to. And people are always confused by that. They're like, why do you have, did you have a bad trip or something? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And they've been immensely impactful for me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Like I would have never made it this far and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be alive. Like my life would have ended. And so I can't use words that would accurately describe how powerful it's been for me. And it's not for everybody. And there's so much, like you said, trendy now that it's like, oh, cool. I read this book. I'm going to go do ayahuasca in this person's basement on Saturday, and I'm going to cure myself and heal all my things. And no, you're not. Don't, don't do that. And I've had friends who have fallen into that and then called me and being like, I did this and now I'm all messed up. What do I do? And I can tell you it's much harder to deal with that than it is how you were previous. Like it can definitely, I've seen, I've seen psychedelic induced psychosis. I've seen people who it took a lot of work to get them back to a baseline of where they were before, because it, it can be very unsettling and very ungrounding and very disorienting and very confusing and scary and all of those things. So I, I'm glad you brought that up and breath work too, should have a facilitator. It should have a trained person. It should have prep integration, like those questions and set and setting. And there's a podcast that somebody recommended to me that it feels appropriate to mention recently that is called, I just made a list today. It's called, I believe, Cover Story. And it is about the underside of the psychedelic world. Not just about like what can go sideways if you're not responsible with it, but like actual things that have happened that are less than integrity filled and dangerous and hazardous. So I always try to be a counterbalance when I talk about, or I try to be balanced when I, when I talk about psychedelics and I'll never be an evangelist, but so I'm glad you brought that up. And the same thing goes with cold and hot and all those other things. Like, Oh yeah. It's a really good point. Like some people should not be doing cold therapy. (laughs) You know, I, I can't, I'm the first one to admit it. Like I, I have a horrific, it is, it, I do not feel good after I do it, before I do it, during it, anything that has to do with it. And I've tried to do some figuring out as to why I've read things about different types of fatty acids. I've read things about different kinds of nervous system responses. And I would rather get punched in the face repeatedly for the amount of time versus being in any sort of cold water. And I know that there's immense benefits to it. I know I've seen the research. I've, your posts have shared a lot of it. I could 
name the checklist of incredible things that happen. And right now, for me, that's not my thing because the amount of stress that it causes to do it. Yeah. And it, it goes back, it's like an Eastern medicine principle, isn't it? You know, like kind of the fire and the earth and things. Like some people need the warmth. And generally, I'm someone that can do the cold and I love it. It gets me really in the moment. And we have a lot of fun going down to like Southeast England in the winter and jumping in the Atlantic. But like generally, I am more someone who can sit in a sauna for two hours when at a heat that people can tolerate for two minutes. Like the warmth is what nourishes me, I think, a lot more than the cold. Um, but I enjoy both. So again, again, what is your kind of your your kind of your current state ultimately? Because as you say, it is a stressor. So do you have the capacity to withstand that stress and the energy to mount the stress response? You know, there's mm. this really great paper on mitochondria health. And the, the, one of the takeaways is this idea that you need energy to mount a stress response. So if you've got kind of mitochondrial dysfunction, you can't create the energy to mount the stress response. And that might be why some people can be very apathetic, for example, because they literally just don't have the energy to mount the stress response. And you need to mount the stress response to kind of live like it, it isn't a bad thing per se. Um, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. So if there's mitochondrial issues going on, then is that one of the mechanisms that might explain why some of these things can actually exacerbate our health, like, like exercise? Yeah, yeah. I've worked with clients who feel terrible when they exercise. So then we have to do things that are more like Qigong mm. and yeah. restorative yoga and walking and you know things like that. And Because what happens if you have a big stressor and your body can't mount a stress response to it, then what happens in the physiology? The thing that the benefits usually come from is the stress response and then the return back to homeostasis. If you don't have that, you're just throwing a lot of stress in a system that's already maxed out or it would be able to, to handle that. So, okay, now that we've gone in like 117 different directions, which is kind of where I thought this would go, but it's, I, I want the, you know, people are like, what am I supposed to take away from this conversation? I think it's that there's so much that you can do. Like there's so much that you can do that influences your health. And it's not even things that you're intentionally doing. It's everything we do influences your physiology. It influences your health. Like we've talked about a bunch of things that are conscious decisions. Like I'm going to go to a psychedelic ceremony. I'm going to do breath work. I'm going to go to a yoga class. I'm going to go in the woods. I'm going to go hiking. But I mean, literally everything that we do impacts our physiology, impacts our microbiome, impacts our brain health, impacts, there's no, there's no separation. And I just, I really enjoy the way that you tend to piece all those things together. And yes, that the, the complexities of how they all work are mind boggling. Cause sometimes I talk to those folks, the ones who are like, the ones who fixate on that, like that's their role in life is to understand the biochemistry of what happens when you go in a cold and then this happens and this and this and this and this happens in your mitochondria. Like I've had those conversations and that's great. And I think that some of that can get overwhelming for the lay person who just doesn't feel good, especially the person who doesn't feel good. My wife has autoimmune conditions when she's been in a flare. And I'm like, look at this article I just found that talks about uh, rheumatoid arthritis and this thing and this and this, and it's like a journal article and she's in a ton of pain and hasn't slept in two days and what, not the time. These things are also very simple. And 
ancient and not secrets and been practiced forever. And what would be just, I don't know if we're going to, we're coming out of time here. So I don't know what you'd like to add at the end of this all over the place conversation or a takeaway for people to consider after we just talked about all of those different things. Um, Two things come up. One is kind of, I guess, I think it's, it can be really helpful to work with a practitioner who has that breadth. Like I think in society, we're conditioned to almost, you know, really look up to those people. And I'm not criticizing this at all, but we're, we have a society that conditions us to like go to the expert who knows everything about this one thing, (laughs) you know, and and this is the, one of the challenges with like the academic system, you go from your degree to your master's, then you specialize in the PhD and you know all about that. But, you know, go and speak to a gastroenterologist about how, I don't know, about the gut kidney axis, and then likely not going to know much about the gut kidney axis. So I think it's important that the practitioner that we work with is someone that has the breadth of knowledge, because that I think is far more important, at least initially, than having someone who's got lots of depth to their knowledge, but is very narrow, if that makes sense. And then the second thing, which may be the overarching conclusion from today is the body is far more wise than the minds and most of us need to get out of our head and into our body and that's where the somatic stuff i think can be so powerful that can start very simple that could be going for a walk barefoot on nature and connecting with the ground and getting back into our senses and then that can feed into something like holotropic breath work down the road or a psychedelic ceremony but the body is far more intelligent than we give it credit for. Going back to this idea that so much of what we pathologize arguably is actually just an adaptive response in the first place. Um, So why, why is the body doing this? And what am I genuinely doing that is cultivating health? So in my psychedelic practitioner program, we're in little pods of six, seven people and three of mine are psychotherapists. And we've had quite a few conversations about how they're frustrated with the current paradigm because it's all about pathologizing an individual Mm. it's like here's my manual you fit this and therefore you have this diagnosis do they Uh, use that same giant book of diagnoses over there is that worldwide or is that an american thing the dsm dsm yeah so yeah it's the same about a book that needs to be lit on fire (laughs) (laughs) it's the same in medicine you know we 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 create these terms Mm -hmm. that people attach to for safety and because it gives them an identity sometimes and we just have to sort of break that all apart like our current society is there are problems at that level that then ripple down into individual existence so going back to like psychedelics one of the biggest problems we have is psychedelics don't fit in the current culture you can't go for a weekend psychedelic retreat come back and expect you're going to be happy and you're not even nine to five but seven till six like, and that's why the preparation, integration, community, network, support is just such a fundamental part of this. So I think, you know, any tool that you can have or you enjoy that's going to get you into your body to allow that innate intelligence to arise within is fundamentally how we can get to a really vibrant state of health. But through that is likely going to be huge challenge because of the society we live in in the modern world and at least that like, i guess i'm projecting here that's like part of no, my no, no. that's totally i think that's totally spot on this this culture 
And, and by this culture, I mean, we live in different places, but most of Western society has adopted the same culture and same systems and same everything at this point. Like it's one big homogenous. I like you said seven to six instead of the nine to five too, because yeah, if, if you have an inkling or some little gut feeling that something is kind of inherently wrong with the way that everything is, going on a psychedelic retreat, you'll need some help when you get out of it. Yeah. Or you're because... just going to down further. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah well i it, that's what showed me like how messed up everything was like and it shined a magnifying glass on it but then it's like if nobody's there to help you do know what to do with that it can be really overwhelming but i i love your two points look wide and be with somebody work with somebody who can look wide and see the larger scope and then they can help you find those hyper-focused individuals who can you know, this person needs a little help here and they need a little help here. I know people who do that yeah. and they do it really, really well. And they don't need to know anything else. Those people don't, they just do that thing and then they send them there to do that. So looking wide instead of going with a specialist right off the bat, and then the, the body's wiser than the mind. And I resisted that because the mind was the way that I kept myself safe. I could like outsmart and clever like everyone and everything. And now I'm being interviewed for a summit next week. And my my talk is entirely on somatic practices that bring you into the present moment. Nice. And like three years ago, I would have never wanted to do that. Not even talk about it. I didn't know about it. But if someone would have tried to get me to do the things that I'm going to talk about now as the teacher, I would have been like, not nah, cool, pass. And the answers that people are looking for, that's where they are, mm. but it's not all that's there. Beautiful. And so you get all of it. You don't just get the thing that's like the nugget you're searching for, but in my experience, it's ultimately worth it. But having a guide is very important. So just thank you for, for tying those together. You put a much better bow on this conversation that I feel like was fueled by my ADD than I was able to do. And I appreciate the work that you're doing and all the things that you're tying together. If somebody wants to find you, I think there's three different spots. Probably they could go to find, if it's a health practitioner, there's one. If it's a lay person, there's probably a couple. So where we'll have the links down below. You gave them to us, but if people are only listening and they're not seeing right now, where should people go to learn more about your work or check out anything that you're doing? Yeah, so like my my personal um sort of contact would be my website which is just alexmanos.co.uk if you're a practitioner interested in mentoring then afmmp.co.uk is the website for my mentoring program and healthpath is healthpath.com so that is uh, for the public if they are interested in sort of functional testing if they're trying to get some answers around um, gut health or if they're curious in the microbiome then we offer those kind of tests with a practitioner who's interpreting the test results you will feel you kind of complete symptom surveys to give us the context of why you're doing it and then we create some health programs on the back of all of that data and we also have health path pro which is for practitioners um, in the uk nutritional therapists primarily and it's a uh, it's growing into a one-stop shop so this is where we offer um, you can create your supplement programs, you can order your testing, you can provide food plans, you can provide your resources. There's dozens of CPD resources in there as well. Um, so that's kind of the, the practitioner version. Beautiful. And there's a lot for those who don't work in tech or 
websites or backend things like we do. There's a lot that goes into all of that functioning. So cheers for setting that all up. I, I hear you talk about that. And then I immediately start to think of like the logistics of the back end of a website and how all those things would work and managing all the different populations. And it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. So kudos to you guys for setting that up. And it sounds like an amazing res- resource for people in the UK. And thank you for doing mentoring. The more practitioners that we can get on board with this type of wide scope vision and approach, the better off everybody's going to be. So cheers to that. And I look forward to collaborating more in the future. Yeah, likewise, Michael. Thank you for having me on. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guests and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations, and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases.